Welcome to Faithful Sayings, a podcast of the Olson Park Church of Christ. For a few minutes, let's talk about God's Word. I'm Kyle Pope, preacher at Olson Park. Thanks for joining us. After long debates and discussion, when the Second Continental Congress finally decided to separate the American colonies from the British Empire, a committee of five was chosen to compose the Declaration. Thomas Jefferson wrote the original draft, with other members offering editorial changes. When submitted to Congress, it was reduced by a fourth of its size, edited for grammar, approved on July 2nd, then signed two days later on July 4th, 1776. The first sentence spoke of rights to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle us. The second became one of the most well-known assertions in human history. It declared, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Eighty-two years later, these words were used in debates over slavery. In Abraham Lincoln's debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, he quoted this, arguing for an end to the practice. Today, while our secular world no longer considers the existence of a creator something self-evident, this assertion continues to be used to argue for rights as diverse as public health care, economic security, or even immoral behavior, public indecency, abortion, and many other things. While God is dismissed as a source of rights, it is now held that laws of nature and government entitle and have endowed us with the right to expect these things as our due. The concept of inalienable rights. Jefferson's appeal to inalienable, or as in the final version, unalienable rights, refers to something unable to be taken away from or given away by the possessor, from the New Oxford American Dictionary. Jefferson was not the first to use this language. It is believed that the Irish philosopher Francis Hutcheson first spoke of rights in this way. In his 1725 work, Inquiry into the Original of Our Ideas of Beauty and Virtue, his argument was not that we are entitled to receive certain things. Instead, he argued that things belong to us from our creation that no government should take away. When they are, he contended it grants the right of resistance, claiming unalienable rights are essential limitations in all governments, from Treatise 2, Section 7.10. This was why the signers of the Declaration of Independence employed this wording. They argued the king had deprived them of rights that should not be taken away. Among these are Jefferson's wording is interesting in a number of ways. 
First, it assumes there are other rights, not specified, that are granted by God and nature that no one can take away. The Bill of Rights, later amended to the U.S. Constitution, articulated some of these rights. It did not grant these rights, but acknowledged that government could not infringe upon them. Second, the three things Jefferson mentioned are significant. In 1690, British physician and philosopher John Locke argued that men, being equal and independent, ought not harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions, because we are all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker. From the Second Treatise on Government, chapter 2, section 6. He, too, argued the right to resist injury, claiming that man has, by nature, a power to preserve his property, that in his life, liberty, and estate against the injuries and attempts of other men. From the same work, chapter 7, section 87. Locke's formula of life, liberty, and estate, or property, was well known by the time of Jefferson. In 1772, Samuel Adams affirmed these three as the natural rights of the colonists. The Rights of the Colonists, Chapter 1. Jefferson never explained why he substituted the pursuit of happiness for property, but it may have been to avoid a purely material idea of property. Locke probably meant more than just real estate. In 1792, James Madison argued that property includes one's personal and religious convictions and the free use of his faculties and free choice of the objects on which to employ them. In his papers, on property, March 29, 1792. We now call this intellectual property. Whatever Jefferson's motive, we must ask if the Bible supports this concept of inalienable rights, and if these ideas we share as Americans are compatible with what it means to be a Christian. The Biblical Foundation of Rights Scripture speaks of rights in terms of the authority or power one has over things. God gives man power to eat of the labor of his hands as a gift of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 19. One is to exercise power over his own will, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37. Although Paul had the power to have a wife, or receive support from churches, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 4 through 6 from the King James Version, he did not use this authority from Green's literal translation, lest he hinder the gospel of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. Scripture affirms there is no authority except from God, the last part of Romans 13, verse 1. This is true of civil authority, and personal rights. True rights are only derived from God. How are these rights known? Scripture speaks of God's ordinances 
over the heavens and the earth. Job 38, verse 33. Psalm 119, verses 90 and 91. But God's will for man is not inherently placed within us. Jeremiah wrote, The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. It is by God's word that man's steps must be directed. Psalm 119, verse 133. It is through God-breathed scripture, as the New International Version puts it, that one is equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, from the New King James Version. Any concept of natural law is only true if it conforms to God's revealed law. Does God's law grant inalienable rights? Yes and no. There are obligations to God that cannot be surrendered to another. If human demands ever require disobedience to God, in every case we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5 verse 29 from the New American Standard Version. This suggests that a higher divine law supersedes any power that others, even civil government, exercise over us. Each person must act based upon the dictates of personal conscience. Paul taught, whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans chapter 14, the last part of verse 23 from the New King James Version. Yet while it is always wrong to act contrary to our conscience, If our conscience is not properly trained by Scripture, we can condemn ourselves by acting contrary to God's law. See Romans chapter 14, the last part of verse 22, and compare that with Acts chapter 23, verse 1. As the Bible teaches it, liberty is a relative right. Paul taught, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. And James called the law of Christ the perfect law of liberty. James chapter 1, verse 25. This largely addresses freedom from sin and the burdens of the old law. If one has the right to act upon the dictates of his or her conscience, there is an inalienable right to free will. However, that does not mean we have an inalienable right to liberty in all areas of our lives. Paul commanded, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. The first part of Romans chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible does not teach a concept of individual sovereignty. All souls have obligations to others and to the government that is over them. Personal liberty can be limited based on behavior or economic need. When Paul was arrested, although he defended his own innocence, Acts chapter 25, verse 7, he did not object to the right of the government to restrict his liberty. When Paul taught on slavery, an institution in ancient times built on financial need or victory in battle rather than race, He did not condemn masters for restricting the liberty of slaves. Instead, he taught proper behavior servants and masters should practice. Ephesians chapter 6, 
verses 5 through 9, Colossians 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, Titus 2, verses 9 through 10, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Our modern employee-employer relationship demands the surrender of a measure of personal liberty to meet our obligations on the job. A Christian must be willing to surrender some rights for the good of others. Romans chapter 14, verse 21, and 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. And endure mistreatment in certain cases. Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 through 42, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Although in other cases, he has the right to flee from persecution. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. If there is no authority except from God, civil authority does not grant or establish rights. It is its duty to uphold principles God has revealed. Romans chapter 13, verse 17. The right to life should be upheld by civil authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Although behavior can require the forfeiture of this right, Acts chapter 25, verse 11, government has the right to take life in punishment for wrongdoing. Compare Romans chapter 13, verse 4. But it must act with justice and impartiality in doing so. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19. As the Bible teaches it, happiness comes as a consequence of serving God. Psalm 146, verse 5, and Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. But any right to pursue it must be conditioned upon obedience to divine law. There is no right to pursue whatever makes us happy if it does not conform to God's law. God promises contentment and happiness in obedience to Him, but does not set personal happiness as the ultimate goal of life. Compare 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. As Christians, while we are proud to live in a free nation, let us always shape our view of our rights on God's word and not on the popular sentiments of our culture. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our work, visit olsonpark.com. If you're in Amarillo, Texas, come worship with us at 4700 Andrews Avenue in Amarillo, 79106. And please tune in again to Faithful Say.